words, words, words. This is a coffee house. And for those of you who do not know Michael Knowles and why he was so gleeful in naming his book Speechless. Number one, he is a marketing genius. <laughs> he wrote a book called a few years ago, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. Now, when an earnest Democrat voter sought ammunition or a trenchant Republican voter sought something to debunk, the thick tome would arrive and they'd crack it open to find blank page after blank page. <laughs> Those are the reasons to vote for Democrats, so obviously, hilarious joke, a nice troll. But ever since that, his jealous co-hosts over at the Daily Wire uh, have dubbed him the execrable Michael Knowles. And then with the new book, if you listen to his podcast, what he would do is every time that he touched on the book at all, any kind of subject that he discussed in the book, then he would, or he used the word speechless, <laughs> then he would say the entire title and subtitle, speechless, controlling words, controlling minds. Every, and every time he said it, he would ding a bell. It's to the point where now whenever I get a text, oh my gosh, how did that happen? That was literally, I got a text at that moment. <laughs> every time I get a text, I want to say speechless, controlling words, controlling minds. That is incredible. But so we read this book, his new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Uh, it's on Audible. That's where I got it this time. I didn't get the paper book because it was just included in my Audible subscription. So I was like, okay, fine. And it was actually read by the author. So, uh, so that was good. But uh, as always, we're going to go through the contents. We're going to do a little bit of an analysis where we talk about how good the book was. And then we're going to do some big picture stuff to tie it all in. <laughs> So, number one, in Speechless, how does it start out? Words matter. The liberals have been telling us for decades that words matter. They've been fighting the kinds of words that we use. So, for instance, one euphemism that they wanted to use was justice involved youth instead of somebody who's an incarcerated person or a criminal or something like that. You just use a justice involved youth. And the problem is when they try to change words like these, it usually means that the words come to mean the exact opposite of what they're pretending to mean. So like politically correct. Specifically, politically correct has a modifier before correct, and it's specifically meaning that it's not actually correct. It means the opposite. So like with social justice, so justice is getting what one deserves without favor. Social justice is getting what one doesn't deserve with favor. And there are other ways that this kind of language trick is used. So, like with the idea of same-sex marriage, there was actually no substantive debate about this when it was vitiating its way through the population before the Obergefell decision. It wasn't a substantive debate in the population. It was just a redefinition of terms of what marriage means, of what love means, of what are the criteria for getting married, that sort of thing. And then when it comes to the trans debate now, the ideological debate around trans issues, the words do not define reality anymore, but constitute it. And you have this weird shift wherein we have an evil of truth and a goodness of lies. It's important to maintain the lies, and it's evil to try to speak the truth. And you have terms like institutional racism and how curious it is that the left has all the institutions, so if they want to claim institutional racism, it would be on their behest. And then he tracks one particular word, I think actually not here, he does it in the later part, but it's the word retarded, but it's uh, here he's pointing out that it's not about the terms that it imposes, that it's so necessary that people use the terms that it imposes specifically, but it's the imposition itself, it's the fact of imposition. That's what it's going through, it's going through this ritualistic practice of imposing. Other terms like cultural Marxism, I remember somebody had brought this up at some 
discussion I was having with political people. And they spouted off very quickly, just the standard repost when somebody tries to use that term. On Wikipedia, it's called an anti-Semitic conspiracy. It's just a conspiracy theory. Oddly, the father of Pete Buttigieg, the, he is the, what, transportation secretary right now <laughs> and ran for president. His father published a translation of the Gramsci notebooks. Gramsci was one of the major Marxist theorists who has a, a big hand in critical theory. But the point when it comes to Marxism, cultural Marxism, is that no revolution wins without common sense. That's something that revolutionaries learned pretty early on. You can't win without common sense. But the common man doesn't like the ideas, a lot of these ideas that people espouse. They like their own culture. It's something that they were born into and grew up in, and they enjoy it. So what the Marxist would say is that that person has false consciousness, and what the critical theorist would say is that they have false, false consciousness. And that consciousness needs to be raised. Now, the, where these ideas originated, actually, was first called the Institute for Marxism. This was in Germany, which later became known as the Institute for Social Research, and then colloquially, it's known as the Frankfurt School. And this is, like I said, where the whole critical theory idea developed, and the theory was to criticize. And the point was, it's not a theory in itself, so it can't really be attacked on its own terms, but it's a kind of gadfly on other systems, so it just parasitizes those systems and those theories. And that's at some, at some point in Marx's writing, he talks about how you need to have a ruthless criticism of everything, and the point is to watch the world burn. He's trying to bring it down to have rise from the ashes, the now victorious proletariat. And there are other theorists like Wilhelm Reich, who specifically attacked the family. And these ideas would expand throughout time. So you have the free love era, found this appealing, this attack on the family, and this interest, this budding interest that the liberal establishment now has really taken on in child and adolescent sexuality, which is really weird. And then you have BLM, which switched the, all these ideas, these critical theory ideas, from class, which is what Marx was about, into race. Then he posits here uh, in Chapter 4 of Standards and Practices, he posits this kind of dichotomy between Orwell and Huxley, which were, of course, collaborators or worked together at some point. So Orwell in his 1984 and Huxley in Brave New World. Orwell, the way that his totalitarian state worked was that they used newspeak and just sheer oppressive power to lord over all the people, whereas in Huxley's world, it was using decadence and vice as means to control the population. So Big Brother relies on language to control the people. Newspeak narrows the range of thought. And the revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Whatever everybody says at any given time is the right thing, and they say all the right phrases in all the right ways, then that's when the revolution is complete. For Huxley, it was an exacerbation of vice, and it was just bombarding the people with all these vices so that they were numb to anything meaningful. And this was something about the United States was that, I can't remember which founder specifically who said it, but the whole point was that this was a state for virtuous people. And if you don't have that virtue, you will never be able to build and maintain institutions of self-rule. So under our current PC culture, saying the right thing overcomes doing the right thing. It prohibits the traditional moral opprobrium. It denies the fixity of human nature. And when you retreat, as conservatives often do, into free speech absolutism, it plays directly into their hands because they're doing something active, not defensive. The point is that civilization cannot stand for nothing. It has to stand for something. And one thing that Knowles loves to quote, he, he's quoted so many times, I, could, I always hear it in his voice now, is from G.K. Chesterton who said, There's a thought that stops thought, and that's the thought that ought to be stopped. 
But Knowles suggests here that speech must uphold some good. And PC culture has figured this out. But that's something that conservatives can, hasn't, haven't been able to do up to this point. They cannot keep seeing free speech as neutral and natural state. In Chapter 5, Mal goes mainstream. He points out that Nabokov actually coined the term politically incorrect. He used it as a term of going against the party. And then an Italian writer said politically correct. Use that term. And then Steven Pinker, apparently, he had this idea of the euphemism treadmill, which I think is actually really useful in this context. So what happens is people invent new words as a euphemism, but then that euphemism becomes tainted by the reference, the thing that's underneath it. And then eventually the harsh truth comes out, so they have to invent a new euphemism. So here's where we talk about retarded. So retarded was itself a euphemism that was just meant to mean slow. But before that, there was simpleton that gave way to the term feeble-minded. They gave way to the term of moron, and that eventually became retarded or slow. And now we have new terms for all these segments of the population. So you have to keep inventing, it's a, a, a never-ending treadmill, it's a euphemism treadmill, you have to keep doing it because eventually it bleeds through. And again, the point is that PC rules are made up and the points don't matter. The only thing that matters is the imposition of the rules. It's the ritualistic imposition of rules that it's trying to get you used to. Chapter 6, The Tolerant Left. Herbert Marcuse, A Critique of Pure Tolerance. Uh, this is one of the theorists, critical theory theorists, who had some important ideas that are telling here, like that deluded masses cannot understand their own persecution. So you're incredibly persecuted, deluded masses, and one must use propaganda to convince them of such. You redefine clear and present danger to whatever you like as a theorist, and anything is worth it to attack false consciousness. And we've had uh, an escalation by the left, especially recently, like in things like court packing. You can see the term, how it was abused just hilariously, uh, I mean brazenly, when they try to redefine court packing as being filling vacancies during the Trump administration, which is just ludicrous on the face. Obviously, if there are vacancies, the vacancies can be filled and it's constitutional to do so. But they try to redefine the term of court packing to mean that so they can take it away from meaning what it meant in the time of FDR and what it's going to mean now when FDR wanted to just pack the court with judges that would make decisions in his favor. And like the Democrats now want to do is that to pack a court so that it will make determinations in their favor but what it did was that it created a debate space for this whole idea now you're debating whether what core packing means instead of just being able to out of hand reject the whole idea of packing the cord as ridiculously partisan and bad for the country all right chapter seven is nothing personal this one talks about feminists where the personal is political and that was by hannish is one of the early ideas of feminism these were the feminists who were throwing away bras as symbols of oppression. And again, we had this idea of consciousness raising. So I forget who it was. Was it Simone de Beauvoir who talked about how... No, it was it was different theorist. But uh, she talked about how women who want to, you know, stay home and have children and all that, that they are wrong to want that for themselves and that they need their consciousness raised. But uh, again, this idea that makes it through this, it derives from Marxist false consciousness. The question was, why are the oppressed masses seeming so well-adjusted? Another outgrowth of this was when Joe Biden, when he was on that uh, the Charlemagne the God podcast, and he said that if you don't know if you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. It's a, yeah, there could be black people. If they haven't had their consciousness raised, then they can't actually be real black people. 
So just a ridiculous idea that comes out of that. And then Simone de Beauvoir specifically attacked the family and motherhood as an institution. And I found out, I didn't know this, but that she was married to a philanderer, a guy who was not <laughs> very good to her and was not respectful of marriage. So it kind of makes sense that she would be so wantonly willing to attack. Chapter 8, The School of Resentment. This one specifically talks about schools. And one thing that's pointed out here, black studies, women's studies, and queer studies, what do they all have in common? They all exalt the subject. That's the point, is to exalt the subject. Look what they've accomplished, look what they've done, look how they've been oppressed and how they've come out of it. White studies is the only one that does not do this. <laughs> White studies is the only one that's a derogatory study. And then, of course, there are pushes to ban Shakespeare and the Bible, even though both of those are absolutely foundational to Western literature. And this guy, Jeffries, uh, who has a disciple of Nick Cannon, who talked about how white people were the ice people and black people were the sun people. And there's this kind of inherent virtue to one side versus the other. And this is obviously not something new. I mean, I wrote that paper on Coffeehouse Corner that specifically talked about somebody who had a lot of these same ideas. Then Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project, the whole idea of the project was that saying that the United States was founded on slavery. That was the point. That's why they wanted to break away from the British. There was no evidence of this. And it was popularized by the Times until a whole bunch of scholars resisted this. And they even did it in this kind of cloying, weak way. But they still resisted this and said it was completely wrong. But there's already a curriculum based on it. And the weirdest thing is that there is so little support, actually, in the general population for this whole political correctness idea. But it still pervades. Because the loudest people with the most power in the most institutions are the ones who are pushing it. Then we've got chapter 9, talks about campus, and codes, and coercion. Which goes through a number of things. I mean, there's good information in here. The idea that the only place that you can provide enough protection to be able to evade reality and talk about all this nonsense is on a college campus. And then all these oppression hoaxes and the whole hoax around the rape statistics that made the college campus of Harvard more dangerous than Botswana. And importantly, Western civilization is not uniquely racist and sexist, but uniquely opposed to both. People don't really understand the context of the world that you, the United States of America developed in, and they keep talking about it in such a just petty ideological way. And then the schools here, they start attacking virtues just in general, when the Western civilization is only built for virtuous people. And Knowles attacks uh, Bush, the Bush senior, for a speech that he gave where he only talked about economics. And he was saying this is emblematic of the problem with conservatives now is that they only talk about economics and that they need to address culture. They really need to. And I know I just saw a representative recently who talked about, no, let's leave all the culture alone, never talk about it. But I think Knowles is extremely right in this particular context. We talk about trading taboos, and the big thing I wanted to pick out from this one was the fact that he goes in specifically to, like, the seven deadly sins and talks about how those ones are being flipped around to be virtuous. So things like pride, you know, pride historically would be something that's bad, but now it's, it's pride. No, you have to have pride. Pride's really important, so let's have a pride month. Things like sloth, you know, <laughs> that the left sees work as an indignity to be rectified as opposed to it's something that is dignified and people should be doing. There's another chapter that's about the war on Christmas, and then that one talks about the origin of Kwanzaa in 1966 by Dr. Malana Karenga, who would be convicted for assault and false imprisonment of some women. But this was the origin of uh, this supposedly wonderful rival to Christmas. 
Later, the battle for the sexes. So this talks about trans ideology and the originator of sexual identity studies, Dr. John Money, and the twin brother situation that he engaged in, where he abused these twin brothers. He made them do uh, these demeaning things after they had this botched circumcision. So they didn't have male genitalia, even though they were males. And they, so they grew up just really messed up and eventually killed themselves. But he would make them do all sorts of terrible things when they were children. And then, of course, today we have things like Drag Queen Story Hour, and the author points out how there's a difference between liberty and license, and this is kind of an important concept, is there should be a gap between what is legal to do and what is morally acceptable to do. You can still heavily criticize things that are legal to do when people do them, because they are bad for that person or bad for other people or whatever. One idea at another chapter about locking down dissent was that for when it came to COVID-19 and the counter argument was when somebody, when the government or Dr. Fauci or whoever would say that here's the death rate and it's so dangerous and that's why you need to be locked down. That's why you need to follow, follow all of our directives. And the counter argument would be that no, that's the death rate's not actually that high and we don't know how useful the masks are and all that sort of thing. That was already giving up the game. The counter-argument should have been, you don't have the power to do this, no matter how dangerous this is. This is not something that you just get to do, period. You can ask us politely <laughs> to engage in practices that you say are supported by science, but you don't have the authority to do this sort of thing. That's what the counter-argument should have been. And early on, I mean, I think most of us did not see that. And even today, I think a lot of us are resistant to that idea. But I think he's totally right here, is that it was already giving away the game to try to counter-argue here. They should have never been given that kind of leeway to be able to exert that kind of power over their population. And then later, The Purge, and this is about social media and how the president was suspended, and the great insurrection, and how free speech absolutism is not the answer. We're just outsourcing our standards to radicals in Silicon Valley, and that we should be exerting our own ideas of what good speech is and what bad speech is. Then the conclusion, he kind of hints at ways to fight back here. One of those is to ditch old slogans, you know, like free speech absolutism and other ones, and get on offense. And I think, uh, yeah, we can go from there now into the analysis. So there was a book. There was a lot going on here. It was pretty short. There wasn't a whole lot to it. It was more philosophical than it was scientifically rigorous. I know we have to say that a lot. But I think because it was based on kind of semantics, who was it that said, was it Wittgenstein that said the only thing left for philosophy is semantics? But I think there was so much important to point out here. And everybody can dive onto the book pile, you know, with their books about this or that. But I think here, in pointing out how important the words are, he really kind of broadened the discussion about how we need to be approaching all these problems. So Knowles himself, he's kind of more artistically minded and well-read, it seems, when it comes to literature than a lot of the other conservative commentators. You know, he quotes great literature on a regular basis. He'll bring up Milton all the time. When it comes to the Daily Wire, it's like Shapiro is just this machine. He just kind of churns these things out, and he's just always going at that extremely high-speed clip. And Walsh is kind of the folksy, funny guy. He's the guy that's easy to listen to whenever. But Knowles is kind of the artistically-minded guy. One of the things that absolutely drives me crazy about him, though, is that he constantly cites just terrible arguments for God, and he pretends to be certain about religious precepts, and that's always something that makes me question how much I should buy all the rest of the stuff they're saying if they're so willing to pretend to be certain about these ideas. There are ways to talk about the concepts of God without being disrespectful to the concept itself or to reality. 
and he just shirks all of those lines to just pretend to be certain. So it's uh, that's really frustrating to run into on a regular basis. But I think he's incredibly right so much in this book, and it's it's refreshing, honestly. Conservatives really do have to be on the offense. It's no longer a game being played by two sides with the same rules. They are absolutely trying to change the rules of the game, and have been for a while now. But language is the most important front where this battle is waged. Uh, once that gives way, obviously, you lose that battle, and there's not a whole bunch left for you to counter with. And we, uh, meaning conservatives and classical liberals, didn't push back on this stuff for decades because we thought it was trivial. You know, just the words that are going to be used, you know, using pronouns or changing this word because it's reference to man so that it's more inclusive and all this stuff. We didn't think much of it because we thought it was trivial. But right now, the way things are functioning is that words don't describe reality anymore. Even though they should, they create it, even though they shouldn't. And that's kind of where the footing is when it comes to Western civilization. So that's something that we need to we need to fight that head on. You know, he really dove into topics. There were a lot of times where he really went down the rabbit hole of the etymology of words, which I absolutely loved. I loved those parts to no end. Uh, there were some boring topics like the relative Christianity of the founders. It's like some things just have so little weight on anything, but it's so personally important to commentators that they will just dive down it. But it didn't seem like there was much fault throughout philosophically. Obviously, this is one read, and this was an audiobook, so it's like, how much was I able to really dive down on any given thing? But to me, there were a lot of things that were just good about it. Moving on to big picture. The most important unit of resistance against tyranny is the family. That's why it's the clearest target. The education system is trying to foster that separation, and the whole idea of the family no longer being the goal, having your own family, and that reproduction is no longer the aim. It's not like everybody, okay, everybody get to the age of reproduction and get to start doing that. All of these things dovetail to be a battle against the whole idea of the nuclear family, which is the most important and the strongest nugget of resistance against a tyranny government. So that's something that has to be pushed back on. <laughs> I mean, that's something you can't let fly. Now, keep in mind the hypocrisy and being blatantly wrong about a topic. These things are the flex. They're the point. They're the exertion of power. They're saying, look how wrong we can be and still get you to comply. It's the feature. It's not a bug. <laughs> The point is to exert authority, and that's why they keep adding new words and new standards, and it's to ensure that everybody is constantly failing. They're in perpetual failure, so they constantly need the largesse of the government or the largesse of progressive politicians. So, anyway, I'm glad Knowles wrote this book. <laughs> it, was, it was good to go through. I'll be glad to get into something that's not specifically political. I mean, on the political front, I absolutely, I just feel like it needs to be action, action, action everywhere, period. And it needs to be to the point of squashing these kinds of horrible ideas once and for all. And just being completely victorious on that front and leaving it on the battlefield. But I am looking forward to getting into some other <laughs> stuff. Some other stuff that isn't specifically about politics, and we'll see how that goes. So anyway, this is Coffeehouse. I really appreciate you listening. Check out Coffeehouse Corner on Substack. Check out my book, John Shade Reads. I'm going to have another, I'm going to change the series just so it's within the Coffeehouse kind of framework where we're doing pretty much the same thing where I just make jokes about other people's amateur writing. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll have a book come out so you guys can trash that. Of course, you won't be able to because it's brilliant. But we're going to have that stuff coming along really soon here. And the next book, I'm not sure. I'm doing a discussion. I'm going to do a discussion of this book later this week. And then we'll have the next book after that. We still haven't done Jordan Peterson's new book. Anyway, I hope all is well. And I will definitely see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>